This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello and welcome back to a Tuesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by Ian Boyd of Inside Texas. Ian, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, been a crazy couple of weeks yeah. over in uh, Texas land, in the Texas <laughs> interweb. I think some people have gotten maybe just a, a little hint of it if you're on Twitter and seen just how crazy it's been. Can you illuminate for the listeners what is going on on the the rivals and two four seven and Texas message boards and what uh, fans are what what the temperature is for for Texas fans right now? Um. Well, if you didn't see on my own message board, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a part of it inside Texas. We were we were made famous last week because uh, some of our members were uh, tracking flights from yeah. Columbus Urban. to. Uh, to a resort outside of Austin called uh, Horseshoe Bay. And then uh, Urban made an appearance on uh, Fox Sports where he zoomed in from uh, a room in, in some building, uh, undisclosed building. <laughs> and uh, people were trying to compare the drapes and the curtains on his Zoom call with mm-hmm. uh, some of the online photos from the rooms in that resort. Uh Spoiler alert, I, I'm pretty sure that Urban was not at the Horseshoe Bay, mm. and uh, he is not coming to Austin either. So uh, right now, um, it's pretty wild. I think um, there's a lot of assumptions that Herman will just come back, um, but we've been down this exact same trail uh, back in 2013 with uh, Mac Brown and boosters trying to replace him with Nick Saban and failing. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. So in your estimation, do you think boosters by and large want to move on from Herman at the end of the year, or it's still a wait and see type thing? Absolutely. They do want to move on from okay. Tom Herman. Tom Herman is uh, not liked, not respected. People want him gone. Um, wow. the, ob- the obstacles to getting rid of Tom Herman are the buyout and uh, rallying Texas's uh, extensive booster network um, around a replacement option. And. What does Matthew McConaughey think about all of this? Because that I assume is getting the final, the final say on all of this going forward. Uh, I, you know, that's a good question. He's probably keeping a little lower profile right now. I saw he was trending on Twitter the other day for a, what seemed to be a 
pretty innocuous comment that uh, by the fact that it was trending all day, I'm guessing some people thought it wasn't. So um, he's probably ducking for cover right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Crystal Connie, the athletic director, is I think wishes he could duck for cover right now. Uh, this is not. This is like an athletic director's nightmare. Unless you're, if you're the type like Crystal Connie that thrives at uh, promoting, marketing, um, and uh, making the most of uh, existing product, I don't think Crystal Connie has much. I don't know if he has much stomach for doing a big thorough search and trying to find which uh, candidate would have the those uh, indefinable qualities that make for a championship coach at Texas rather than a, a Charlie Strong. It sounds like to me, so do you think that there is a bigger problem than just Tom Herman? We're, I'm in Knoxville and um, the conversations surrounding Fulmer are just as complicated as they are surrounding Jeremy Pruitt and it's overlooked who is the AD and like how much of a, uh, how strong that goes into things boosters, how much of a say they have at different schools. But like, do you think Texas's problems stem far deeper than just Tom Herman underachieving and being not well liked and respected as, as far as why they haven't. Yeah. As far as why they haven't found stability, they still recruited a high level and they still just can't, can't put it all together. Even though Herman, uh, is undefeated in bowl games and Lincoln Riley actually uh, winless in bowl games. So take that sure. for data. <laughs> um, uh, there's so much, there's so much to unpack with Texas. I think um, it's a big job. Mm. There's a million resources. I remember when they were replacing Mac, my thought was how hard can it be? <laughs> you're, you're the number one choice for half the kids in Houston and Dallas, two of the most football rich, football talent rich metroplexes in the whole country. Um, you have the strongest high school football in the country. You have tons of money. You have a hundred thousand seat stadium. Uh, one rival within the conference with comparable resources seems like this shouldn't be that hard. And it turns out that what I've learned over the past decade is that uh, wielding all those resources is actually a skill in and of itself. And Texas has often hired guys that are effective football coaches, but not necessarily effective at directing so many, uh, so many resources at the same time. It's kind of like, like in military history, you see this problem play out a lot where somebody's a really good, commander at at a certain level but then when you make him step far enough back to see a a big picture then he's not so good um and finding the guys who can who can take the thousand foot view is hard because they may not have the same skill for uh uh closer proximity is this making any sense yeah where it's just like the you kind of need the the general like the the herm edwards mac brown types even where they can they can see everything there's a lot more than just uh on the field tech being on the field tactician and things like that where you it the job has evolved a lot more and you need to find someone who is versatile in a in a unique way yeah part of what made uh urban meyer attractive is is that um he had shown a knack for assembling amazing staffs. Mm. 
like if you look, I think this is probably true at most national championship places. It was definitely true for Ed Orgeron last year, obviously. Is you look at a national championship team and you look at the staff and you're typically going to find a ton of really good coaches. And it's not about, it's not so much about the guy who can, uh, he's like a brilliant tactician or has this great uh, scheme or concept. It's about the guy that can uh, hire and manage staff effectively. Like Charlie Strong, beloved by his players, uh, fairly effective as a recruiter, um, terrible at hiring and managing staff. His offensive staff room was a complete mess. And uh, Tom Herman, good with quarterbacks, uh, good with scheme and coordination. And uh, things start to go a little south at Texas. He starts running the play calling, getting more hands-on with the offense, failing to delegate. And before long, his staff is becoming dead weight, and he's taking on more and more responsibilities. You see this happen a lot, I feel, with coaches you hire the hotshot coordinator, things go south, and they're like, okay, if I go down, I'm going to go down doing what I do best. But And they can never they can never back up and manage the staff properly. They just try to fix it themselves. And you can't, can't do that at Texas. There's just too much going on. And you see that play out with things like, um, like Texas often has players in the wrong positions. Um, they moved Devin DuVernay to slot finally last year, and he goes for like 1,300 yards. He had been completely like absent for his previous three or four years on campus. Um, Joseph Osai having an amazing season this year as a edge player. Last year they had him at nickel at times. Um, there just so many things like that where you can tell that that Herman and his staff are getting so lost and the uh, they can't see the they can't see the forest for the trees, you know. So do you think that's just a part of being at Texas and the pressures there and just all the different things where it's just going to be hard for any coach, even if it does seem ostensibly like they can be someone who can see through the trees like the Urban Meyer type, or once you get into the Austin incubator, that it becomes far more tricky in practicality than uh, one might have assumed just kind of being away and seeing just all the resources and seeing how simple it, uh, it should be. I, I think they, I think it's mostly just about skill set. I think it's a, it's a gifting or a skill to be able to, uh, uh, manage staff and, and lead on that level. And another problem with Texas is that, uh, their hiring process makes it hard to find people like that, especially as they repeatedly fail with other hires so what do you mean so by they, that? Uh, what what about their hiring process is a problem? Well, like with both Nick Saban and Ehrman Meyer, it was we have a gazillion big shot boosters in Dallas. We have a gazillion big shot boosters in Houston that uh, are always at war with the Dallas boosters um, for influence and 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 all that. And uh, we got to get them all on the same page with who we're going to hire. And, and of course, you know, they extended Tom Herman after he went 10 and five or 10 and four or whatever in, in 2018. Um, so now they have to pony up the money for a $15 million buyout for his contract plus another 10 million or so for all of his assistants. Right. And then you got to pony up to be able to make an offer like they made to urban Meyer for like a 10 or 12 million per year guaranteed for five years or something crazy like that. Right. 
to get to actually wield all those resources, you have to play the politics game and get everyone on the same page or they, or those resources don't actually, uh, coalesce. And, um, so you get the situation like, uh, with, with what happened with Mac Brown, if people don't know the story in Knoxville so well is, uh, boosters were moving hard to replace him with Nick Saban. Nick Saban was interested to some extent to what extent is not clear. Um, but he had an extension from Alabama that was unsigned for weeks while this was playing out. And, um, and they tried to replace him with the So they tried to replace Mac with Saban and uh, Mac did not want to go, did not want to be replaced by Nick Saban. Um, and uh, the university president wasn't on board with it either. So they hung on. Uh, they made clear to the Saban camp that there wasn't going to be this smooth transition with Mac's blessing. So Nick Saban backs out, signs his Alabama extension and Mac Brown's like, okay, great. I'm set now. And then it turns out the boosters are, still exceedingly angry and, and determined to push him out. So Mac decides to resign. Um, and then Texas has uh, hiring a new athletic director all this time. So the new athletic director is put in charge of the search and he's just completely in over his head, hires a searching firm, uh, chases a couple prospects and has to settle on uh, Charlie strong. So the process is just really ugly and it's really yeah. hard for, it's just really hard for this bloated, uh, enormous bureaucracy to uh to actually effectively uh steer itself basically so in your estimation how do they get this right who who do they target this this offseason that you're like this this makes the most sense for where texas is as a program right now and who seems to have the best shot to effectively navigate this tricky tricky situation um, it's really tricky. It's not the best year to be no. hunting a head coach, which is why I think a lot of people are just assuming that Herman will come back. Are you one of those people? No. Okay. I mean, the more I, the more I think about it, the more I become concerned that that would happen. I think if that did happen, uh, he would be almost a, a lame duck for an entire year. It would, mm. make, it would make recruiting very difficult. Um, you hear a lot of people say things like the whole eyes of Texas uh, fiasco wouldn't have been a big deal if Texas was winning. Um, and obviously it wouldn't have been as big a deal. Um, no one likes to make a huge stink if the team would have been, you know, six and zero or whatever, and on their way to a big 12 championship and possible playoff berth. But it was a very, very big deal to a lot of people when Herman uh, took the side he did in that, in that struggle. So, um, he's not in good shape. There's just going to be vultures circling around him. And then as soon as he uh, loses to TCU or Oklahoma next year again, um, we're right back where we were. And recruiting in an enormous year for in-state recruits uh, tanks, as well as this recruiting class was tanked by all this drama. I mean, tanked in a relative sense, obviously. Still Texas, still going to be top 15 or something. But, you know, you miss out on those margins. So I think um, I think they need to move on. I think they need to do a thorough search. And I think the answer they land on will likely, for it to be the right answer, what probably needs to happen is they get locked into firing Tom Herman somehow. Um, but then they miss on some of the obvious big targets, and they have to scramble and just hire someone on uh, based off of their list of competencies rather than their resume. 
and uh, they land on someone that has the ability to understand what Texas is and, and sort of uh, uh, manage the resources and hire the right kind of staff to make the most of the school. That's And I don't know if that's going to be any of the obvious big names. Okay, well, give me who you would select if you're running the search. Give me who you think, who your gut's telling you they'll end up with because they're going to fumble the search. <laughs> um, I know that they're looking at Gary Kubiak. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's a very interesting idea. I don't I'd hate be curious. that. I'd be curious to hear who he's going to hire. Um, what his vision is. And, Wade um, DC, Wade yeah. Phillips. <laughs> Pro- probably not. You assume Wade Phillips probably not in for that right now. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, I think I think that's interesting. He's 60. He's had health issues. Uh, if, if he thinks this is going to be a place where he can be a detached CEO. I mean, I've just been describing that they need sort of a CEO type. Mm-hmm. But... Not a detached one. Not one that's looking to keep his blood pressure down. I don't think that's going to work. Um, so, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. There's a whole lot of questions with that one. I could. I think that that could... I, I'm not ruling out that that could work. I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about it, but there's also a gazillion questions. Um, Matt Campbell is the other obvious one, I think. That would uh, be my like starter. It's just, what does it take to get Matt Campbell? I, I would... He seems like the perfect CEO type that the the big jump. But man, that would that would be brutal for Cyclones fans. Like that would just be really twisting the knife there. <laughs> I if he wins the championship and beats Oklahoma for the second time in a row, yeah. I think a lot of people are gonna wanna here here are the problems with Campbell though. I don't know that Campbell is a detached CEO. I think he's mm. very hands on. Um, I think he's used to small town programs where he has a lot of autonomy and he doesn't have a lot of distractions. Um, and like going from Ames, Iowa to Austin, Texas, I mean, that's about as big a shift as you can make. Mm. And then, um, yeah, I don't think they're doing real world Ames. Yeah. Yeah. Hasn't come to that. (laughs) And there's a, uh, there's a, there's a report going on right now that he's not interested in ever moving to any job other than Notre Dame or Ohio state. I don't really believe that. But he is a Midwestern guy through and through, has been there forever, came up Mountain Union, Bowling Green, Toledo. I, th- I, I would guess that Michigan is very interesting to him if it becomes open. I don't know if he would come down to Texas and put up with uh, all of Texas's stuff. I don't, I don't know if that would be attractive to him or not. And then even if he did, I'm not totally sure. I know that he's a great football coach, but I don't know if uh, – I think that would just be such a major adjustment. It would be interesting to see mm. some uh, super unexciting names that I think are actually kind of interesting. I'm ready for Willie Fritz here. No, not, not Willie Fritz. <laughs> uh, Sonny Dykes. Uh... Every, every time I see his name come up, everyone says they're like, oh, Sonny Dykes. Here, here's the thing on Sonny Dykes though. He understands Texas football. Mm. Uh, he's done a re- really good job of hiring and managing staff at SMU. He had Rhett Lashley come in there. He was able to, he was able to jive his air raid with uh, Lashley's power spread deal from coming out of Gus Malzahn's camp, and they had a great year. Um, 
he's hired really good recruiters. They've been able to to build up SMU's program to to start recruiting kids that are actually from Dallas. Um, whereas, you know, during SMU's long journey in the wilderness after the death penalty, they were mostly just the hoity-toity private school that no one from like South Dallas would ever, you know, step foot on. And uh, they've turned that around. They're recruiting kids from those powerhouse South Dallas programs from the with with schools or with schools that are down in those like uh, predominantly uh, uh, black uh, suburban sub- suburbs down in South Dallas. And so there's just a lot of things there where you wonder if he might be a good fit for. Well, you're going to com- be competing with Lubbock probably, right? Like Matt Wells <laughs> suddenly on the hot seat, and I think Dykes went to went to Texas Tech and coached in the league there right well, Dyke, apparently dykes is very happy living in highland park and coaching at smu mm. yeah there's if no that, expectations it's pretty great if that's if that's the case i can't see him going to texas tech to get his head kicked in and certainly not <laughs> certainly not choosing it over living in some uh in some upscale part of austin you know so um dykes i think is interesting um i think i'm the only person you'll ever hear say that the other one over at inside texas that we've been talking up is this guy jeff trailer oh uh, UTSA, people, right? Yeah, people will know him as the guy who's been head coach of a <laughs> of a college football program for all of three quarters of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason we like Jeff Trailer, uh, besides the fact that some some people know him, um, is that he was a very successful high school coach in East Texas. Came to Austin, uh, really helped Charlie Strong as an assistant. They were killing it and recruiting. He was really helpful on getting them uneft in mm-hmm. running a spread offense. He understands the spread offense. He understands the spread offense primarily as a way to just get your best players isolated in space. Um, he's not. He doesn't get trapped by specific tactics or formations or schemes. It's just recruit really good players to your school, put them in space doing what they do best, and let them you know let them eat. Um, so he's, uh, he has the high school head coaching experience. He would, the high school coaches around the state would be super excited about it. Um, he, uh, understands the spread offense and he made some really good hires when he was put in charge of UTSA. He managed to get this offensive line coach, Matt Maddox, that had been at Texas with him at the same time has bounced around a little bit and done well at a lot of places. And they have, uh, their running back ran for like, uh, 1200 yards six yards a carry or something in like eight games or nine games so uh a lot of positive signs that suggest he might be just the guy the problem is uh he might not be he's only been head coach for this season uh and it would be really hard to convince people to to take a chance on something like that but what um in terms of on the field product this year at texas um what would you say has actually gotten better with Urich and the changes they made to their coordinator positions? Like what, what have you seen that has actually been encouraging um, outside of Sam Ellinger running the ball a bunch and getting his brains beat in and the running back situation. It seems like they finally realized a variety in the backfield is better than just uh, the same guy over and over again. Like what have they done well that, that they deserve credit for um, in, in terms of 2020 Texas football? Uh, not much, honestly. <laughs> I, I think they might have been better last year. Uh, your sitch, see, it seems like a couple of the things that he really brought were uh, he has them running 
outside zone a lot more as their base running scheme rather than inside zone. And uh, A, there was nothing really wrong with their run game last year. And B, there's been a lot wrong with their outside zone game this season. So they've actually regressed their success rate. They used to be like a very unexplosive but steady team running the ball. And now they're boomer bust in the run game, which uh, doesn't play well with the rest of the offense. Um, because they have been really good at like, hey, pick up a pick up a couple chain moving gains on first or second down with the run, and then let Sam Ellinger pick up third downs with the spread passing game or scrambling or the quarterback power run game. He was really really good in uh, protecting the ball and executing situationally in like third or six or less. He could beat you in like three different ways. But uh, Gersich has tried to turn Texas into a run outside zone and then throw play action down the field. And uh, they don't run outside zone well. They don't have good outside receivers to get open. So it's it's not really been that great. Um, the last couple of weeks, they really improved in part because they were just finally figuring out the run game. Uh, they had to move the offensive line a little bit as a result of injury and then actually got better, which was pretty damning on their ability to self-scout their own personnel and have them in their best spots. And uh, they started playing the five-star freshman Bijan Robinson as the lead running back down the stretch, and he's uh, a lot better than uh, Keontae Ingram. So so it, it's been it's been pretty lame on offense. They, they've been okay. They have not been great. <laughs> Um, a lot of their good numbers they've had this year have just been the result of Sam Ellinger willing them to victory. They improved a lot on defense, which is the reason why they uh, didn't uh, regress overall from last year. What are you going to miss, and what are Texas fans going to miss most about Sam Ellinger after he's gone? Oh, He feels like a waste. Like He could have been an all-time college football quarterback. He really does. He feels like a waste. I I think that's that's going to be what I remember is that Texas had this special quarterback uh with a really unique skill set and they completely botched 4 years of it without winning a single Big 12 championship in a period when the Big 12 wasn't really that good. And that I mean for me there's a lot of things to dislike about Tom Herman but the complete wasting of Sam Ellinger's career at Texas is just been unforgivable. I will never forgive that man for that alone. Some of the other things maybe will be water under the bridge someday, but that is a deep stain on his resume and uh, I'll probably be bitter forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The last thing, and we'll wrap up here. Uh, What happened with Quinn Ewers? Is he gone? Um, you know, I get the sense that that kid has always just wanted an excuse to come to Texas. Mm. This happens with a lot of kids in Texas. A lot of the top players, they want a reason to come to Texas. They're like, you know, I could just go to Texas, live in Austin, be a star, be better than everyone I play. That'd be great. Give me a reason to come. And, uh, Texas has really struggled to give good players reasons to come to Texas this decade because they've mismanaged uh, the good players they have had so egregiously. And um, I think, I think as much as Quinn Ewers would love to come to Texas and be a Texas legend, get the program back on the map, get Texas back, you know, like Sam Ellinger thought he had done for a minute. 
and uh, and then also maybe you know cash in on the on the NIL whatever the acronym is you know the licensing deal that's going to make Texas even more of a behemoth in recruiting than they already are. Mm. Um, but uh, he just I don't think he trusted the staff to make the best of him. And then if you look where he did go to Ohio State, the Ryan Day, it's just an obvious it's an obvious business decision. It's either uh, come to Texas and be a legend or make the safe choice and go to Ohio State and uh, Transfer make sure you're to... with someone. LSU <laughs> a national <laughs> title. Yeah, or just yeah, or just be somewhere where you know they're going to shepherd your your gift mm. competently. Um, I think if Texas had got Urban Meyer, they had a chance of stealing him back. Um, so is that I don't dead? Know. Do you think that's completely dead? Like there's no way that that happens? Yeah. Mm. I don't know how that would come back. I've read some fun conspiracy theories that seem to make sense. But honestly, I think that he uh, couldn't get his guys from Ohio State and is a little bit of a narrow network kind of uh, coach. Mm. And uh, just didn't want to. Also, didn't are we sure come Urban Meyer should still be coaching at this point? Are, are we sure? I are mean, we, in what sense? Health. <laughs> like health? his health stuff is real, and the brain. Like when he that whole thing about his brain and having the cyst on his brain and the headaches, and he was almost falling over, throwing up on the sidelines. Like he's had the heart stuff, he's had the head stuff. Clearly, he doesn't handle stress very well, and I. Right. He has I think, nothing to I prove. That, I think that not being able to bring his top guys from Ohio state to run the infrastructure at Texas. I think that led him to believe that the health issue would just kill him. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, he had those, that's scary, but possible. Personally, I can't trust that man because he's such a snake. So I don't know totally what's, what's real and what's not. Um, I was, I was willing to, to take the risk on his behalf of him coming to Texas and trying to <laughs> work it out. But uh, I, I don't. I really don't think it's going to happen. So, all right, we'll, oh, we'll right. wrap up here, Ian. Gun to your head, Texas style. Who is roaming the sidelines on September thirtieth in Austin? Who is roaming the sidelines? Man, uh, I don't think it's going to be Tom Herman, but I think you would have to give him the highest odds. Okay. Because there's no one else that's a clear uh, consensus candidate. Not, now, one could emerge down the stretch, but uh, right right now, surely Vegas would handicap it and Tom Herman favor. And so I couldn't, I couldn't throw out another name that I think would really be uh, mm. super likely. Can I give you the wild card that I hope enters the race? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'll give you a hint. He just retired. He's the ultimate CEO guy who's won at places where you should not win. Who am I talking about? Bill Snyder? No, that would be hilarious. No, not Bill Snyder. I'll give you a hint. He's, he just retired from the Northwest. Chris Peterson. Get no, him in the fall. No, no. Don't drag that poor man. Drag him out of there. Get him out of the Northwest. He's he's gonna get bored. He's only fifty six. He was like ready to be done, and I'm just like, nah, I don't think so. You, I, I don't think you're just gonna that go guy, off something. 
that guy turned down so many jobs to stay at Boise State because he was happy where he was. And then he's got his even better dream job at Washington and things are going okay. And he just he's like, I I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I cannot imagine such a person coming to Austin to take over Texas right now and leave the his beloved Northwest for uh, the heat yeah. down in Central Texas. And then even if he did, I don't know how well it would go. Can I give so, you my uh, doomsday that I could 100% see the headline on ESPN in six months? Or I guess uh, I'm six, three. Can I give you like the most realistic one to me that I'm just like, oh, this is a reminder that Texas is not back and this is still a problem? I guess. <laughs> Justin Fuente. <laughs> and Scott Satterfield. Uh, Neither would just be like, oh, no way. No way did Texas do that. That would feel very Charlie Strong response era to me. Like, I, I, I would not be stunned. I feel like we had a list of names on our website recently that were uh, a little more likely than that. I can I can pull them up for you real quick if you like. Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm guessing um, Willie Tiger won. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, Dan Mullen, but I think we all agree uh, that he's probably just – He's like the all-time uh, best start of any Florida head coach of all time. That dude's not going anywhere. Um, James Franklin has been mentioned. I think mm. I will, I will burn couches if that happens. Sonny Dykes, uh, Steve Sarkeesian. Mm. So it seems like someone's going to hire that guy, and uh, Texas is not beyond such a thing. Um. Mario Cristobal, apparently, I've heard that the Texas boosters are not super impressed with him. I don't really understand why. And then I've heard, I read somewhere, maybe Football Scoop, I don't remember, that uh, Phil Knight is not super impressed with Mario Cristobal. And I don't, I don't totally understand that either. I'm not, I'm not, well, I'm not super impressed, but I, he seems like a pretty solid option. So I, that's kind of confusing. So there, there you go. I like There's it. some other. And then I can give you some uh, breaking news as we're wrapping up here. Michigan, Ohio State is canceled. Oh. Interesting. I can't wait for um, people to be mad online when Ohio State finds their way into the playoff still. Absolutely. It's going to be great. I, mean, <laughs> I think we all know it was going to happen in that game. So do we really need to play it? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't. Um it's like, first. are they going to score 80 points? Or are they going to score 90? Well, this was the only way for Michigan to keep Ohio State out of the Big Ten title game. Yeah. Not playing. Um, Ian, is there anything you would like to plug before you get out of here today? Uh, that should do the trick. Everyone check out Inside Texas. We also have a, um, a new board over there called the Flyover Football Message Board where we do a little more uh, regional t- coverage of the – Texas, Big 12, surrounding area, and that message board is free. So everyone should check that out. Also, can you bring back uh, Football Study Hall, please, Ann? I, you know. I'm looking at my book right now. I have the book. I read it every day. I miss it all the time. I miss, that's when I first read your work. Was It feels like five years ago now. Can you bring it back, please, and then keep going with the Inside Texas, but also bring back Football Study Hall? You know, maybe someday. Maybe someday 
uh, it could uh, it could rise again like a phoenix from the ashes, uh, probably in a new home. But there we'll you see. Go. If Bill Connolly wasn't so selfish, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, keep up the great work, sir. And uh, we'll have to talk again soon. You bet. Thanks for having me on. All right. We are back on the Chase Thomas podcast, the Tuesday afternoon edition of the chase thomas podcast i am still you're not going to believe this folks chase thomas and that guy up there in new york city in his in his uh his beautiful spacious gigantic brick apartment it's john taylor john good good afternoon sir how are you my 750 square foot apartment which actually from new york is is pretty big i guess Mm. but Certainly, certainly not a palace by any stretch of the imagination. Did uh, did you see when New Yorkers invented the uh, the grocery store this week, or was that last week? The bodega, week? you mean? The bodega, yes. Yeah, the they bodega. The bodega. We, we invent that was last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invented the bodega. It's this crazy thing where you can go to one store and get groceries of all kinds of different things, uh, and also food. It, it's really wild. It is uh, another great New York invention. So I, I'm excited to see how Knoxville responds. Because if there's anything about Knoxville, it's that uh, we react accordingly to what uh, what New York is bringing to the table. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, well, what of uh, congrats on your future bodegas coming thank up? You, thank you. Um, I'm just think I'm picturing um, BoJack Horseman with the uh, the Halloween store in January. And I'm just thinking of like a bodega store in Knoxville and just how empty and how sad it would be because the it would be negative zero amount of people going into a, a Knoxville bodega. Yeah, you're missing out. You can get a, a chopped cheese or a, a good sandwich, buy some prayer candles, mm. at a cat. Really <laughs> great. Uh, I, I'm very pro to bodega, but I uh, I don't think I that would uh I would share that sentiment with other fellow Knox villains. Um John, what have uh what have you been yeah. reading this week? What have you been uh what have you been doing since we last talked? Uh not a whole lot. Uh just reading wise I'm just trying to catch up on the big ass stack of New Yorkers I got that have just piled up. Uh turns out the New Yorker's kinda hard to read during a pandemic when it's just all about the bad news. Mm-hmm. So I've just kind of I've fallen behind on that but uh, otherwise, just you know, just hanging out, just seeing if baseball will actually get going. Seems like things are actually getting going a little bit. We've got a few major moves in the last like day or two, so that's nice to see. Um, well, before we get into our our season and review for the New York Yankees, um, do you have a Fisher update since last Tuesday? Has Fisher done anything in the last week? Any story time with Fisher? Um, he hasn't really done all that much. Mm. No, he's, he's just his usual fluffy dumb self. He's, he's he's hanging. He's chilling. Okay. He's having a ball. <laughs> I like it. I like. Does he like the cold? He loves the cold because he's big and fuzz or not big, but he's very got a lot of fur. So for him, the cold is nothing. Okay. Okay. Um, well, as I mentioned, we will be talking about the New York Yankees um, on this iteration of the podcast, and I think the way to start this conversation about looking at the 2020 New York Yankees and what, what went right, what went wrong, what they can build off of um, is whether or not 
it's fair to characterize their season as an underachievement in terms of what the New York Yankees should have been coming into 2020. How would you characterize their season? I mean, if it since we're talking about the Yankees by any by any definition, like not winning a World Series always is a disappointment for them. They're supposed to win the World Series every year, or at least that's what their fans would have you think. Um, I would categorize it maybe not a disappointment, maybe that's too strong, but certainly like they went into this season as at least in my mind, no question that the 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 title favorite in the American League, and I think aside from them, only the Dodgers really were were kind of in that same conversation in terms of overall World Series favorites. So for them to fall short, uh, not just of the World Series, but also of the, of the ALCS, yeah, that has to qualify as a disappointment. And I think there were plenty of things that happened with this team that at least feel like disappointments. Um, certainly the fact that injuries really seem to play a big role again, that has just been an endless, endless problem for them the last few years, despite changing training staffs and everything. Um, certainly the fact that Aaron Judge only managed to play 28 games. Jaron Carlos Stanton only played 23 games. Um, you know, that that hurt, obviously. And mo- most of the rest of their lineup stayed okay. But, I mean, on top of that, you had Gary Sanchez having an awful season. You had Glaber Torres having a com- having falling really far from what he did in 2019. You have uh, the pitching staff that, aside from, you know, Garrett Cole and Masiro Tanaka, and I, actually, to a certain degree, Jay Happ, really just was not ready a uh, bullpen that just kind of uh, and maybe if there's one real disappointment for the Yankees it's that their bullpen which was supposed to be this big huge strength really did not turn out as such in part because uh, they lost Tommy Canely to Tommy John surgery which ended up being a really really big loss he was one of the better um one of the like a top 5 if not top 4 option for them and then Adam Ottavino just having a weirdly down season um and it killed them so I think, I mean, certainly there are a lot of positives. You know, Luke Voigt, DJ LeMay, Hugh Gio Urshela continue to show he's not a fluke somehow. Uh, Clint Frazier finally breaking out is obviously really big and really useful and good for them. But I think overall, like, if you were to ask a Yankee fan how you feel about the season, especially given that they lost to Tampa, a team that is, at least for the time being, supplanted Boston as every Yankees fan's most despised non-Astros team, uh, I think it would definitely qualify as at least a disappointment. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's something where Yankees fans should be freaking out, but I, I think if there's one thing you do kind of start to worry about, it's that this particular roster, as with every roster, is getting older and it's getting more expensive. Um, and especially when you look at the fact, something like already you're seeing, like, what, well, you know, DJ LeMahieu was such a huge part of the last two years. What happens if he walks, you know? So it's not quite like decision time and it's not quite the windows about the slam shut, but. I definitely do feel like it was a disappointment given what the Yankees came into the season looking like that they, you know, that they fell short the way they did. I think that's fair. Um, they also don't have an owner who live tweets what, uh, what he's thinking about and what, uh, what Mets fans are thinking about. He, he is not doing that same thing. You know, I, I think that Yankees fans should be grateful that at the very least, like Randy Levine is not tweeting what he thinks because <laughs> that would be a really unpleasant experience. Um, as to the Steinbrenner family, you know, I, it, it's weird because like clearly they, they're willing to spend. I mean, they, they okayed a contract for Garrett Cole that's the largest that's ever been handed out to a pitcher in Major League history, you know. They're, they're clearly okay with that. But then there are also places where it just seems like I don't know. The, the, the way this roster is constructed sometimes, it does seem to feel like they're like the Yankees are always just kind of one thing short. 
Um, and I think probably in the, in that case last year, I mean, and some of this was just James Paxson getting hurt and kind of, um, and kind of screwing up the pitching depth overall. But you, I think you kind of felt like going to that, going to the season and also Luis Severino blowing out his elbow. That was a really big, big problem, but especially it felt like during the season and at the trade deadline, the Yankees didn't really get the, the starter that they could have used. And I don't know if that was a payroll thing. I don't know if that was, uh, Brian Cashman didn't like any of the options on, on the market, I, I, you know, whatever it was, but it does feel like the Yankees were like, at, like just one notable player short last year. So at certain points, and they couldn't have seen that going into the year, obviously, because not only of Paxson and, and Severino getting hurt, but also the way the season played out. But you know, you definitely look at the trade deadline as something where it's like the Yankees, you know, had an opportunity there maybe, um, and then just didn't take it for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, what the heck happened to Gliber Torres last year? And do you think there's any chance he gets back on track in New York? Oh, for sure. I mean, he's, he's young. He's still baby. Glaber is all of what? 24 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He'll be 24 this season. No, he's, I have no, well, he, he actually turns 24 in December, but so next year will be his age 24 season. Regardless. I have no doubts whatsoever. He'll get back in the form. He's a fantastic hitter and a fantastic player. And, and you know, no doubt there. My, in, in terms of looking at what happened to him last year, I think there, there are two things that really stand out to me. One is that he just seemed to, he just wasn't hitting the ball as hard. Um, his barrel rate dropped, his hard hit rate uh, dropped, or actually his hard hit rate, you know, his hard hit rate actually went up. Uh, the barrel rate went down, average exit velocity went down. Um, it, it just seemed like a player was just wasn't, was just kind of missing his pitches which kind of takes to the other thing that was really notable is that his walk rate jumped a lot. His strikeout rate fell. Normally those are really good things. You walk more, you strike out less. That's great. The problem was it seemed for whatever reason, like Torres got really passive um, on pitches in the strike zone and on just swinging in general. And I think this is a scenario where it's like they're they, obviously you want hitters. You want your hitters to become selective. You want them to be patient. You want them to wait for their pitch. But I think there is something to be said about an approach that is, if you get a ball in the strike zone, if you get a strike you can handle, hit it. Don't just let it go by. Like, if, you, if, you earn, if you're in an O count to start the at-bat, and you let the first pitch go by, and it's a first pitch strike, now you're down 0-1, and your, your chances of success just drop. Why not, if that's a good, if it's a pitch right in the strike zone, why not just take it if it's a straight-up fastball, you know? And not only that, it puts him in situations where it's all of a sudden, it's like, okay, now it's 0-1, 0-2, or, you know, it's a pitcher's count. Now you're getting a steady diet of breaking balls and off-speed stuff, which you can do less damage with, obviously. And you look at Glaber's numbers, and the, the thing that stands out there is that he really he went from crushing fastballs in 2019 to doing okay against them in 2020. And that really does kind of set up everything else, which is you know if, if you're not hitting the fastball, if you're not hitting strikes um, that are being given to you, basically, you're, you're not really going to succeed. So I think that is a that's a big part of it, and I don't know if that was a conscious effort on his part to uh, to be more selective, or at least to take more pitches, or what. But I, it doesn't really seem like it worked. Particularly, again, you look at what he did against four seamers in 2019. He hit 303 with a 703 slugging percentage and a 456 weighted on base average against four seam fastballs. In 2020, 217, 304 with a 297 weighted on base average. That's a really, really big drop against a pitch that major league hitters do the best against. 
And I, again, without be, without being able to go back and watch every one of his plate appearances or talk to anyone on the team, you know, I, I can't say if that was a, an active decision on his part to kind of lay off those pitches, but it certainly does seem like he's swinging less, especially in the strike zone. And that seemed to hurt him because, you know, if you're swinging, if you're making more contact with stuff outside the strike zone, because his outside contact swing and, and or his outside swing and contact rates didn't really change that much. You're, it's going to be harder for you to get barrel on the ball and, and actually drive the ball with authority as opposed to just swinging at strikes. You know, you're, you're supposed to swing at strikes. You're, just, you're not supposed to swing at balls. And I think that might, be, that might be part of the problem for Glaber Torres. I mean, he also dealt with some injuries last year, primarily a, a hamstring and quad strain that probably screwed him up a little bit. And I do wonder, too, if, just, you know, if we can kind of chalk this up to... to um, the weirdness of the season of having to stop start and then stop and then pick up again in the summer. It just seemed like there were a lot of hitters who just couldn't get comfortable with that disruption to their routine and with that disruption of their production. I would, I would imagine that with a fuller season, especially because, you know, you can hit your way. I mean, ultimately we're talking about for as bad as Torres was, and he wasn't all that bad. We're only talking about 160 plate appearances. You know, that's what two months worth of action. Those slumps happen. If this has been a full season, maybe he hits his way out of it. But I do think if there is a full season next year, I'm, I'm, I, I am willing to bet on Glaber Torres, who is too talented and too young to have this kind of thing happen to him. Then again, you could have said the same about Gary Sanchez, and I, 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 I don't think anyone knows what's going on there with, with Gary, but that's a, that's a whole, whole different argument. Mm. Well, before we get into Gary Sanchez, um, what about Davi Garcia? Uh, I'm just thinking about different young guys because the veterans, we are, I think you can explain away the James Paxson stuff relatively easily, but the stuff with Debbie Garcia, you're like, Hmm. He started six games, I believe last year. It's pretty solid. Is he a fixture in this rotation going forward along with Jordan Montgomery? So I think Montgomery is more of a fixture than Garcia is, if only because Montgomery is, I mean, Montgomery's already 28. He's been in the league for a couple of years now. There's no real reason for him not to be part of the rotation. Whereas Garcia, depending on what the Yankees do this off season, you know, maybe he is part of that rotation. Maybe he goes back to AAA for, for, for a couple of weeks, depending on whether or not there is a minor league season and how that all plays out. Um, but certainly Garcia is the way more upside going forward than the guy, a guy like Jordan Montgomery is a nice, you know, bottom of the rotation starter. Garcia has real top of the rotation potential. I think the question with Garcia is, you know, since he's a smaller guy, he's only about five foot eight and like 160 some pounds. He's a little dude. And well, he does on. not throw hold on. particularly. Be careful, John. Hold, hold okay. on. Be careful. Okay. All right. for, for all of us, five eleven, one forty 140 guys out there. I need you to, I need you to calm it down a little bit. Well, in terms of relative to like, you know, relative to a guy like Garrett Cole, who's just a large human being, you mm-hmm. know, and has that prototypical power pitcher build, Garcia's way more in the Pedro Martinez side of things, a kind of, you know, smaller, kind of more compact frame. Um, the thing is, obviously, Pedro Martinez, despite being, you know, kind of on the shorter side, lanky through 98 miles an hour, Davey throws about 92. So that that already kind of makes. I mean, I don't I don't know if this is something where over time maybe he builds up more velocity. I mean, he's still only 21, 22 years old, um, but it does put a lot of pressure on the secondary stuff to to work. He does have a really nice curveball, but he doesn't really have a consistent third pitch right now. You know, he's using he's he's got a changeup, he's got a slider. They're both okay. Um, so I think the question with Garcia is too. It's 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 a question of both durability. You know, that idea of like can can a smaller guy hold up. 
um, through a full season going forward. And it's a question of just in terms of like what the arsenal looks like. And there's also been, there are also questions about command. I mean, he, his command was really, his command and his control were really, really good. Um, in his, in his major league debut last year. I mean, he only walked, I think four guys in six starts. That's, that's great. Um, but it is just a matter of like, okay, since you don't have that overwhelming velocity and since you don't really have kind of a dependable third pitch, you really are going to need like, like a plus command and control to be able to get through lineups right now, unless there is some kind of velocity spike or unless there is a real refinement of either that change over that slider. I mean, ideally both. I think for now, I mean, he's obviously going to be part, again, depending on what the Yankees do for the rest of the winter, of whatever rotation competition happens in spring training. Because uh, that rotation right now, as of right now, is Garrett Cole, Jordan Montgomery, um, Domingo Herman, who's going to come back from his suspension, although he hasn't pitched in really a year at this point, and definitely showed a lot of concerning... There were a lot of concerning things he said and did over the course of last year that makes you wonder if, he's, if his head is really in baseball right now. Um, to, to say nothing of what, you know, whatever it is he did that we still don't know the details of that got him suspended in the first place for, for domestic violence. Um, and then it's kind of an open question after that you have, and I think it's a, it's a question of, you know, which kind of young guys might be able to step up for New York. Is it Davey Garcia? Is it Michael King? Is it Clark Schmidt? You know, I, I do think that they're almost certainly going to, to sign at least one veteran pitcher um, to slot in behind Cole and ahead of Montgomery and Herman. I would wager it would be Masahiro Tanaka, if only because you know that's the only organization he's ever known. I, I, I imagine there's probably interest in a re, in a reunion, just because you know I, I do think the Yankees like what he offers. I think he is a dependable guy that they can rely on. You know, it, it, it doesn't really make sense—not doesn't make sense—but it, it it seems like a, a, a it, it makes more sense for them to reunite with Tanaka than it would with Hap or with Paxton. The problem with the Yankees is, or the problem for the Yankees, I guess, is. Um, now that Lance Lynn has been traded, there's not really a whole lot in terms of above-average starting pitcher options that you really feel all that comfortable with. I, I don't know where they fall on Trevor Bauer, but obviously Bauer is, one, going to be expensive, and two, has a less-than-cordial relationship with Cole, which maybe has changed over the years, but Bauer is his own unique set of issues and questions and problems that I'm not really sure the Yankees are all that, all that eager to get involved with. And then beyond that, now that Lynn now that Lynn is gone, the best starter on the trade market is Sonny Gray, and the Yankees already did that particular song and dance, and it went brutally for them. And while the Sonny Gray who's in Cincinnati is different than the Sonny Gray who's in New York, I still don't think that that's something that Brian Cashman wants to do is bring him back. And so past that, what are you left with? I mean, maybe maybe they get involved in the bidding for the the Japanese pitcher who just got posted, Sugano, who was great in the WBC and is a two-time uh, uh, Japanese Cy Young winner. I don't really know where else they go from there. I mean, do you invest in someone like, you know, is it really worth getting someone like Jake Odorizzi when you could just get Tanaka back instead? So I, I do think, and I know we're, we're, we were going to talk about the rotation of the bullpen anyway, but I do figure that, like, Garcia is definitely going to be part of that conversation. And I do think that if it does end up, if Tanaka does end up being re-signed and you do have a top four of Cole, Tanaka, Montgomery, Herman, Garcia is probably the favorite for the number five spot. I think he has more upside than, than Michael King and, and Clark Schmidt. But, I mean, it's, we, we, we're going to have to wait and see. The other thing is, like, there aren't really – the Yankees' rotation options beyond that are not particularly great. They have a lot of really great, like, young, hard-throwing pitchers. But 
in terms of guys closest to the majors, it's it's Garcia and King and Schmidt. So I, I would imagine that they probably go into the spring with those three guys competing for that fifth spot and maybe keeping an eye, too, on what veterans might be out there if, if things don't work out. This is where I mentioned Cole Hamels, just to annoy you. Interesting. Um, well, let's get into the rotation and the bullpen. Um, in your estimation, when you're looking at what's uh, what we saw this past season and then what we have to go on at this point um, with some signings still to be decided, um, do they need more more power in the starting rotation or do they need more more bulk in the, the back of the bullpen? I think it's the starting rotation because, like I said, they're, the, the depth chart there is pretty thin since they're losing or have, at least at the moment, lost Tanaka and Hap and Paxton, who I know wasn't obviously wasn't good last year but and was hurt. But, you know, that that's three guys who were taking regular starts in 2020 that are now not present. Whereas the bullpen, nothing's really changed there. Chapman returns, Zach Britton returns because, they, you know, they've re-signed him already. Adovino will return. Chad Green will return. Um I can't imagine Canely will be ready at any point, maybe late in the season, but that's a really good top four already, assuming Ottavino kind of gets back to, you know, kind of the, the baseline of his, of his previous performance. Although he is, he is 35 years old. He's, he's, you know, this not saying he's finished and done, but you know, it's obviously a little harder for a guy, an older guy to, to get that back. And again, because the Yankees do have a decent number of hard throwing arms in their system that they can just kind of call up at will, you know, maybe, Maybe the loser of the fifth or of the fifth starter competition joins the bullpen for a little bit. Maybe they put King in there. Maybe they put Schmidt or Garcia. I, I don't think that they would really do that if there is a minor league season. I think Schmidt and, and Garcia in particular are way more valuable to them as starters. But I think this Yankees team can survive with the bullpen as is. Maybe they add one more guy or two more guys or some veteran options. I don't think they're going to be going after the likes of Liam Hendricks or anything. But maybe someone like an Archie Bradley would make sense here. And I don't think that's a particularly hard thing to do because, well, they've already got they've already got a good amount of, of top flight talent there. I think for them it's more just about building up depth so that they're not forced to rely on like Nick Nelson and Luis Sessa in high leverage spots. Which wasn't really the case last year, but you know, any 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 distance you can put between those guys and the late innings is is a good thing. Um, whereas rotation wise, like I said, there there's not really those there aren't really those internal options right now aside from some untested rookies. I do think they have to get at least one more veteran starter. I do think it probably will be Tanaka. Um, you know, I, I don't really know. Like, I'd, I'd have to take a quick look at the free agent pitchers just to see kind of if there's anyone else who kind of is worth the attention. Um, Charlie Morton would have been really great for them, um, but that obviously didn't happen. Uh, Charlie Morton would have been great for a lot of contenders. But, you know, Mike Miner's already off the table. Marcus Stroman's already off the table. Kevin Gaussman, Drew Smiley. Like, the guys with actual upside are pretty much spoken for. I don't really think that the Yankees want any part of the likes of, you know, Rick Porcello or John Lester, kind of these older, you know, kind of innings-eater types, uh, particularly because, I, you know, Rick Porcello in Yankee Stadium would be very, very funny, but it would be really, really bad for the Yankees. You know, and just... A lot of the guys on this list are just like they're just kind of filler to a certain point. You know, maybe that maybe there's maybe we, you take a flyer on Corey Kluber, um, but that's I think the Yankees probably want something a little more guaranteed than that. And I think that that probably is someone like Tanaka or maybe it's Sugano if 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 he has an interest in New York and they get the price right. But um, 
certainly I don't, unfortunately, I don't know enough about Sugano to, to be able to say confidently what he would be, but it's definitely a name worth keeping an eye on because there's a definite sense, you know, you read uh, what evaluators are saying, and the belief right now is that he's probably the best pitcher on the market who isn't Trevor Bauer, which I think says more about the free agent market than anything else, but certainly a, cal- a talent of that caliber becoming available should intrigue any team with, with, with deep pockets, such as the Yankees. Hmm. What do you think about a David Robertson reunion? I don't think it's going to happen. I, the, the thing with Robertson is he's he's missed basically the last like three years straight. I mean, since the Phillies, he, he threw all of six and two thirds innings in Philadelphia. You know, he has, he's barely pitched since since 2018. Um, he's 36 now, or he will be 36 next April. I I don't get the sense that that's. I mean. It, it would depend on whatever he's. I don't know what his current situation is in terms of um, workouts, in terms of auditions, or whatever you want to call them. And for for other pitchers, I don't know what his agent is looking for, or his agent himself. <laughs> he is his own agent. Um, I don't know what he's looking for in terms of um, terms of contracts, in terms of guaranteed money. It, it does feel like a guy where at this point, with his age and with his in the last couple of years, maybe he's looking at kind of a smaller one year deal. Maybe he's looking at some kind of minor league invite. That would, I don't know if that gets that bad, but I mean, certainly he's the Brian Cashman is familiar with him. Maybe if it is just something like a cheap one year pillow deal, a la what Blake Trinan got with the Dodgers last year, sure. But I don't really see him as a solution. Uh, more maybe just kind of a flyer where it's like if things go right, then things go right. But I mean, I guess yeah, if it's a one year deal, certainly why not? But. Um, I don't know. He just feels like pretty damaged goods at this point. And yeah, Did you read that Philly's goods piece by uh, Sam Miller on ESPN the other day? I did not know. Oh, you got to read it, John. It's, it's so good. Of just like, okay. they're the only team that did not do the rebuild the right way. Um, and that it really was just bad luck, just bad player development and like the pipeline. It's, it's wild. But anyway, David Robertson's in there and just their guys and all their guys have been, better than uh most people would have expected Bryce Harper being top 20 David Robertson's like the only like free agent signing that really hasn't panned out for him that that's just that that's what I wanted to add yeah there. a lot of a lot of the bullpen moves for them really just did not work Dave Robertson Tommy Hunter Pat Neshek they all just yeah. they didn't really they didn't really come together um but sure I mean why not like I mean that that I would imagine that is probably the kind of guy the Yankees are looking at is a kind of veteran guy on a maybe on a one-year deal um, but I because, think that's again, what you do for the bullpen. Or... You just keep throwing shit. Like you, you have no idea. Like yeah, the bullpen think... is so volatile. We have no idea who's going to be the next Bob Whitman. And I think, and I think the Yankees kind of adhere to a similar strategy. What the Dodgers do when they sign Trinan and then this year when they traded for Corey Nabel, which is maybe this guy is broken now, but we are so confident in our abilities, and he has shown in the past utterly wipe out stuff that this is a guy worth targeting because if we fix him, we are getting an extreme value. I don't know if that's so much the case with Robertson because, again, he is older, uh, certainly than Nabel and certainly than Blake Trinan. But the Yankees, you know, to a certain degree, pulled something similar off with Zach Britton, um, who, had, who came to them, certainly not the Zach Britton of old, but, they cert- but they've, you know, rehabbed into being great again. Um, yeah, I mean, I-, I can see it. I can definitely see it. I mean... In terms of other kind of relievers of that same ilk, I mean, maybe you're looking at, uh, I don't know. Well, I would say Kirby Yates, but he's going to be rehabbing. He's more of a uh, one-year-with-an-option type guy. 
Um, but again, Bradley would be an option there. Uh, maybe like a, maybe someone like a Mark Melanson or I don't know. It, it just, it depends on a you lot of have things. Mark depends, Melanson. But I, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> no more. You can have, you can have yourself a Mark Melanson. Or like a Sean Doolittle, um, although it'd be a real crime to make Doolittle shave his beard. Mm. Um, I, I think that's probably what you're looking at for the Yankees is kind of in a similar vein to the Dodgers is um, younger guys. Actually, I didn't realize with Canely, he's he's a free agent now too. Um, so I, I can imagine the Yankees will probably re-sign him um, because they outrighted him to get him off the roster and he picked free agency. And maybe they're, I assume probably down the line, they'll sign him to they'll re-sign him to a deal. But I think if you're the Yankees, you're probably looking more at like those veteran guys you can sign to a one-year deal and just kind of toss them in there. Because aside from Liam Hendricks, there's not really anyone available, um, I think, and maybe if you talk yourself into Ken Giles, but I don't know about that, who really fits that mold of like, yeah, let's like, like an Ottavino or a Britain's like, let's, let's give this guy two or three years because he's shown consistent dominance. And I think Hendricks is the best bet, but I also can't imagine Hendricks is going to go somewhere where he can't close. Um, because, you know, with Chapman, obviously, there, the, the Yankees are set a closer. And even with Chapman down, they'll probably just go to Britain. Hmm. I don't know what they do. I, I They're going to have options because they're, I think they're going to be one of those teams that just, they can see how it plays out early on and be like, okay, we got to do something. And they'll, they have the, the capital to, to do that if things go really south in the bullpen, I think. Um, DJ LeMayhew, is there a number or a number of years for you that um, scares you a little bit too much where you're like, yes, DJ LeMayu was critical to our success last year. Um, but do we, do we have a tipping point for what is acceptable for us or what's palatable for us um, in terms of the DJ LeMayu's sweepstakes? Probably. I imagine probably no more than three years. I mean, he turns 33 next July, like, can't imagine the Yankees want to pay for him beyond that or beyond the next three years. The, the thing with LeMahieu, the complicating factor, and, and we didn't get into this with, with Torres, but I figured now's a good time. Glaber Torres is not a good defensive shortstop. Um, he really did not, he did not do well with the position. He really struggled out there. I wonder if two of that affected him at the plate, if he just kind of took his, his defensive struggles with him to, to his at-bats. Regardless, maybe it can be his long-term home, but it doesn't really seem like right now that that's the best idea and that ideally for all parties concerned, Glaber would move back to second and the Yankees would figure out a new option at shortstop. I mean, maybe it's someone like Marcus Semien, maybe it's trading for a Francisco Lindor. Regardless, you know, it seems like that would be a better choice. The problem is if you bring back LeMahieu, he's your, he's your starting second baseman. You, I mean, you can, he can play anywhere. He can play third, he can play first, he can, you know, he can play multiple positions. But first base, you're already locked in with Luke Voigt. Third base, you're locked in with Gio Urshel, although Urshel is, might, is probably going to get a late start to the season because of uh, elbow surgery. But regardless, he's there. You also have Miguel Andujar kicking around in the minors, who I have to think at this point is probably in every trade package the Yankees are discussing because I think Urshel has pretty well stolen that job. Um, regardless, that, that does create a conundrum. It's like if you sign LeMahieu, you are forcing yourself to keep Glaber in a position he's not as good at. But if you let you go, well, now you're really weakening your offense. Again, unless you trade for something like someone like Francisco Lindor. So I think that probably does give the Yankees an option in terms of telling LeMahieu, this is our offer and this is what we're sticking to. Because in their, in their mind, they have to, in Cashman's mind, he has to think, well, I can just put Glaber Torres at second. 
And if I want to do something at shortstop, if I, even if I can't trade for Francisco Lindor, okay, fine. Maybe I just signed Marcus Semyon to a two-year deal. Maybe I signed Andrelton Simmons to a one-year deal. Shortstop is actually one of the positions that has a decent number of options available for the first, like, you know, maybe there's a reunion with Didi Gregorius in the works. I mean, between Semyon Gregorius and Simmons, there are three free agent options you can live with for at least a year or two. And then on the trade market, obviously there's Lindor, but, and I, I mean, this obviously would not happen for a lot of reasons, but the Astros might be looking to move Carlos Correa. That's a possibility. Not only that, but the shortstop market next year is going to be even better. I mean, not just, not just Lindor, obviously, but uh, Corey Seager, if the Dodgers don't give him an extension, will be available. Uh, I believe Correa is going to be available as well. I'm just checking on that real quick now that I'm, cause I'm curious. Uh, your free agent shortstops in 2022. Francisco Lindor, Trevor Story, Corey Seager, Javi Baez, Carlos Correa. If you're the Yankees, like, this is the thing. You are going to get ripped to shreds by the fans if you let DJ LeMahieu walk. But if you're the Yankees, at least one of those five guys is going to make it to free agency. At least one. And in the case of Lindor, you can probably trade for him right now. Don't you feel like if you're the Yankees, if you're Brian Cashman, isn't it at least tempting to let LeMahieu walk, put Glaber at second, find a plug-in shortstop option like Simmons or, or Didi for a year, and save that LeMahieu money for someone like like Correa or Seager or Lindor? I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I do think that that is a really compelling fallback option, especially if LeMahieu's... Uh, if LeMahieu's demands are looking like three years minimum, or if it's looking like, you know, $50 million guaranteed minimum. But if you, you know, do that and you go with uh, the former, then you got to really be sure you're getting one of those guys because LeMahieu is a definite now and you are trying to win now. And if you miss out on LeMahieu and you get uh, bogged down by the years and stuff like that, which is totally defensible, but you better be sure that you're going to get someone to match that kind of production because it cannot be understated just how productive he was for the Yankees this past season. No, no, of course not. He was, I mean, he was top five MVP, MVP finisher in both years with New York. I mean, you, you let him walk, you're losing a ton of offense. Yes. Um, you're also putting a lot of pressure, not just on Torres to bounce back and Gary Sanchez to be productive, but for judge and Stanton to stay healthy together, which they've never really accomplished uh, since both have been on the Yankees. So it's a definite risk, but I can see, you know, if, if that is the, the kind of the potential like backup plan, I can see how that's compelling. And I can imagine that Cashman has probably been, you know, bugging the Indians every now and then to see what they want for Lindor. Because um, the truth is like the Indians have to trade him. You know, maybe the Yankees can get away with a package built around Andujar and one of their younger starters. Um, maybe like a Michael King or someone kind of a little further down the ladder. If they, I mean, obviously, if they can make a Lindor trade happen, they should just do that and just go roll with a Lindor labor middle infield. Yeah, I think LeMahieu's future in New York is probably dependent not just on what the Yankees do or what the Yankees can figure out trade wise. Because the other thing is, like, obviously, those other names I mentioned, aside from Trevor's story, depending on what the Rockies do, are, are not going to be available in trade um, unless the Cubs do something utterly wacky with with Javi Baez. Um, but it's also going to depend too on, you know, there are other teams in the mix, like the Mets are, are in on LeMahieu and they could certainly use him at a variety of positions, especially now that Robinson Cano is, is, is out for the season. 
the Blue Jays have been in on LeMahieu, and he would make a ton of sense for them as their regular second baseman, which would allow Kevin Biggio to be kind of more of a utility guy. Um, or also LeMahieu can kind of fill in at third base now that Vlad Jr. is not going to be playing there. Uh, you know, I'm, su- I'm sure there are other teams who are interested in LeMahieu as well. But, like, he, he, the Yankees are going to have competition for his services. And I do have to wonder if there is a point where the, where Brian Cashman says, we don't want to pay, you know, we don't want to give a three-year, $48 million contract or whatever to a guy who turns 33 next year and who forces us to play um, a guy at short who just can't handle the position. We're better off putting Glaber at second, signing a defensive whiz like Angelton Simmons for a one-year deal, and then, and then you know, keeping – keeping the pressure on the Indians and seeing what develops over the course of the year, because maybe Lindor doesn't get built in the winter. Maybe he's a deadline deal, but regardless, I, I think the Yankees do have options there such that losing LeMahieu would not be a disaster, but I do think if it's something where they don't get Lindor and instead they decide we're just going to go with Simmons, it definitely does lower their ceiling somewhat on what they can do in 2021. Hmm. It, it is definitely something where I would love to be in on the meetings with Cashman in this group about what to do here. Oh, yeah. I think this would be something I would, I'd be really would, fascinated to hear the arguments pro and against this kind of thing. Yeah, I would love to I would love to know what the Yankees are thinking on this one because that really is like a I, I am genuinely curious because like the, the LeMahieu thing really is to a certain degree a conundrum because like I said, so much of it like they they have they they just have this log jam not just up the middle, but just on the roster in general in the infield. I mean, you look at their depth chart. Um, they're trying to find playing time for Aaron Hicks, Aaron Judge, Luke Voigt, Giancarlo Santon, Glaber Torres, Clint Frazier, Gio Urshela. And if they resign him, DJ LeMahieu, that's eight guys for, well, sort of kind of for eight positions. But there's there's also obviously more going on. There's, there's Mike Talkman. Well, I guess Mike Talkman's more reserved. But it's what do you do with, with Miguel Andujar, the, you know, it, it, there's we haven't lot, even mentioned Clint Frazier, by the way, in this podcast. We are yeah. 37 minutes in, and Clint Frazier has not, uh, not come up yet. Yeah, and, and that's which is wild to me, because he had a great season last year, and he, yeah. I think he's pretty much pushed Brett Gardner completely out the door. I mean, maybe Gardner returns just to, for like one more year being a reserve. But the he's Yankees in a Dustin really Pedroia role him. now, where it's like, yeah, I don't, don't know really why he has a roster though, spot. Because but, they have Mike Talkman. Yeah, I, I don't know. Can you get, like, where they pay him money, but he doesn't count as a roster spot? Every team should get one of those. Like, the, well, then again, no, I'd take that back because Nick Markakis would be a Brave for, like, 10 more years. So, no, I'd take back that idea. That, that's fair. But, I mean, I do think that, like, I, I do think that adding LeMahieu almost kind of creates, or bringing him back kind of almost creates, like, a playing time puzzle. Whereas the simpler option really is just, okay, we move Labor to second and just get a new shortstop. Because, I mean, again, like, if I, I think even, like, and I, I, the more I think about it, the more I feel like Andrelton Simmons really does make the most sense for the Yankees as someone who is a great defensive shortstop, arguably the best in baseball, who can actually hit, who can handle himself offensively, and who probably is not going to be looking for the kind of commitment that LeMahieu is. I mean, maybe, and I'm sure in, in his dreams, Andrelton Simmons wants a multi-year deal worth a lot of money, but I don't really see that happening given that he is what, 31 years old now, or, or however old he is? Uh, yeah, 31. He, he'll, he'll, he just turned 31 in September. You know, no one's going to be out there looking to give him a three-year deal, especially because he is not nearly the hitter DJ LeMahieu is. So that's someone maybe you can get them on a one, maybe you can get Simmons on a one-year deal 
And again, bide your time for 2021. Or maybe you just burn up the phone lines trying to get Lindor. I think that probably that probably is the most likely option, but we will we will have to see. Hmm. Um, last thing, we'll wrap up here on the Yankees review. Um, you're Brian Cashman. How do you it like what what do you do? What is your who do you sign? Who do you trade? What is your off season checklist that you end up doing? What how would you do it if you are in his in his seat this winter? Okay, well first of all you need to add to the rotation. I think you bring back Tanaka and then from oh, I there, to say, I first of all, I gotta get some um wristbands and uh I need to <laughs> get a little get some quarter zips. Um get some, He really does love the quarter zip. He's a big quarter zip um, guy. <laughs> I think first and foremost is the starting rotation. I think the, the because I think there's also that's also an easy solution. It's just you just resign Masahiro Tanaka. I think the yeah. Yankees can live with a Cole Tanaka, Herman Montgomery, David Garcia rotation for the time being. Because the other thing is the team is good enough that they don't need they don't need a super rotation. Uh, the Rays obviously are still going to be good, but the rest of the AL East is going to be kind of a mess. You know they can survive off that quintet until they figure out maybe and, and can maybe kind of see what develops by the deadline. You know. I don't really think any other free agent option aside from maybe Sugano makes sense, and I don't see them being likely to trade for, for Sonny Gray, so I think you just sign Tanaka and you take care of that. Um, I think I have talked myself into letting LeMahieu walk and signing like Andrelton Simmons. I really do think I've actually managed to do that to myself. It hurts um... the Yankees in 2021 for sure, but if you're Cashman, you can probably feel comfortable that that lineup is still pretty good, you're still bringing back Aaron Judge and Luke Voigt and Giancarlo Sand and Glaber Torres and Clint Frit. You have a good lineup. You're going to improve your defense. It's not going to be popular, but I think you can sell it to yourself at least as, you know, we're saving some money now while, while keeping the door open for a much better player in 2022. I think that's probably how you approach it. It's tricky, but I, I think that's I, – I feel like, again, I feel like I've talked myself into it. Um, in terms of trading, I don't really know that there's anyone on this roster I get rid of. Um, Gary Sanchez is obviously the worst guy in this lineup right now, but he has next to zero trade value, and I think they probably just give it one more year to see what's what. Um, I don't know. Beyond that, like you said, you give you you, scout, you scour about for some kind of cheaper veteran relievers, see if anyone's there who, can, who might fill a who might help fill a, a roster spot. I don't know. I mean, the Yankees, the, the, the two big things for me to the Yankees, or to me for the Yankees, rather, it's a rotation and it's what you do with LeMahieu. And I think, honestly, once they figure those two things out, that's probably the end of their offseason in terms of substantial, like, substantive moves, unless they trade for Lindor. Um, but obviously, trading for Lindor would involve uh, letting LeMahieu walk. So I, 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 do think, I do think those two things are pretty much all that Cashman is really going to focus on for the time being. And everything else is just kind of be rounding out the rest of the roster, I feel like. I like it. I like it. I think it's going to be a pretty quiet offseason for them. I do think ultimately they re-sign LeMayhew. Um, I think it would be a bad look if they just let him walk over years. I don't think it's going to get that crazy in the three or more category. I think they'll just play it safe there, lock him up. They developed him. They took a big chance on him, and he's had his best career. I think LeMahieu probably wants to stay there. I think that's probably an underrated part of this is how much LeMahieu wants to keep being awesome in New York, and I'm going to guess he would prefer to keep being awesome in New York over other options at this point. Um, I do think 
they're going to make some sort of surprise with the bullpen. I think they're going to they're going to do something to beef that up. I don't know what it is. I think you're right about the rotation and they'll just see what happens there, but I do think they're going to they're going to go after some name of like, "Hey, remember this guy? Uh, we're going to take a chance on somebody." I don't think it's like Brad Hand or something like that, but I do think they're going to they're going to make a move on some sort of bullpen arm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, I don't think it's going to be a big name. Like they clearly they, they along with everybody else already passed on Brad Hand. But I wouldn't be surprised to see, like like I said, an Archie Bradley, yeah. maybe, or some other kind of older veteran reliever who has closing experience, has high leverage experience, was dominant once upon a time. Actually, I mean, Bradley was really good last year, um, and who can kind of fit into that seventh, eighth inning rotation along with, with Britton and Ottavino and, uh, and Chad Green. I wouldn't. I wouldn't hate it. Um, all right, John, where are we going next week? Uh, are we sticking in the AL East or are we going somewhere else? We are sticking in the AL East. We're not done. We've got the Blue Jays checked off. we got the Orioles checked off. Now we have the Yankees. So we either have your Boston Red Sox or the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, let's get the Red Sox out of the way. Let's let's just lance that particular foil. <laughs> oh, God. The I, Red Sox. Oh, God. All right. Well, that's what we'll do. Why? <laughs> For that guy down there or i guess up there why am i saying down there um up there in new york city john taylor of fan graphs thank you as always for the time sir for myself down here in knoxville tennessee that is all i've got go leave us five stars and a review on apple Podcasts if you're an apple podcast listener go check out chasehousepodcast.com and give uh, john a follow at j a taylor and go subscribe to fangraphs.com if you are not already a subscriber so go do all that great stuff uh john we'll be back next tuesday huzzah nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah J.B. Weld, world's strongest bond. Pros have trusted it for over 50 years. But uh, why hire a pro when you can J.B. Weld it? J.B. Weld makes it easy to do yourself. We're proud to have J.B. Weld Adhesives as a sponsor. I personally know the owner. Hung out with these guys down at the uh, car show there. And um, I have all their products. What can I say? DIY projects, good auto stuff, crafts, plumbing, marine, all the applications. I use a product to fix Sonny's tennis shoe, save myself some money. Stromer used it to fix his tray on his wet saw because he's doing some tile work. Different product, but all made by JB Weld. JB Weld just acquired Herculiner, the original DIY truck bed liner. So if you're looking for the world's strongest truck bed liner, Herculiner, has you covered. J.B. Weld, right, Dawson? J.B. Weld is available at jbweld.com, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, AutoZone, Advance Auto Parts, Napa, O'Reilly, Amazon, Michaels, and more. And remember, J.B. Weld Epoxy Products are proudly made in the USA. J.B. Weld, world's strongest bond.